Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. We can never know about the days to come. It's hard, if not impossible, to imagine the 1970s without musician Carly Simon. She gained near-instant fame after opening for Cat Stevens at L.A.'s Troubadour in 1971. Within a year, she would make a chart-topping album, win a Grammy, and marry singer James Taylor. Her music spoke to the openness of her generation and earned her critical acclaim worldwide. In hits like You're So Vain, Carly Simon exuded fearlessness, poise, but backstage she was grasping for both. She disliked the spotlight and had to will herself out of a case of stage fright to continue performing. When Carly Simon started out, she never planned on performing. When I started recording, that was all I was going to do. I wasn't going to get out on stage and do anything on stage. I I wanted to make demos for other people to record my songs. So I recorded, hoping that Dionne Warwick would record one, hoping that Judy Collins would record something. Just, I just made a glorified demo. It turned out to be so glorified that, that we had string players and we had arrangements and things got more and more, it became something that a record company wanted. So Electra Records signed me. That was Jack Holzman, who was the head of Electra at that time. How old were you? 25. Hey, you were young. Yeah. Very young. Well, yes. 
And what was the song you were trying to demo that Jack Holtzman said, let's put this out with you singing? What was that song? Well, the first demo I made in a studio had five songs, which was just me and guitar and and another cat named Dave Bromberg on on, uh, guitar. Five songs, two of which I think made it to the next demo. There was a song called Alone, which I wrote on the beach in Martha's Vineyard about being alone and, and romantic and happy. And and there was another song called I'm All It Takes to Make You Happy. There was happy songs. Then there was a song that I wrote with Jake Brackman called That's the Way I've Always Heard It Should Be. And that song I played on piano. And that, that got to the next demo. And Jack Holzman heard that. Clive Davis heard it first and as did a bunch of other people. And they heard my first demo, and they didn't know what to make of me. They didn't know if I was a jazz singer, a blues singer, a rock and roll singer, a theater singer, a cabaret singer. They didn't, they didn't know what to, how, how to apply me to the merchandising scheme. Did of you things. try to suggest to them what kind of singer you were? No, because I didn't, I, I didn't fit my own self into a category. I, I had imitated a whole lot of people, and... I had developed my own voice, but with so many influences that I hadn't, I hadn't cut myself off from my influences and made a whole me. The umbilical cord was still attached to Odetta, was still attached to Annie Ross of Lambert's Henriks and Ross, still attached to Pete Seeger, to, to the various influences. I mean, I still have trouble with that. People say that the reason that I haven't been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that they don't is is that I'm not really a rock and roll singer or that or, or that I sort of go in a lot of different directions. I've made four albums of standards for example which I didn't you know which I didn't write which were written by Cole Porter and George mm-hmm. Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart and the great the great people who could write great songs for singers because they weren't one and the same in that period. But what was interesting to me is that when you are 25 years old that's the way it always should be is your first song that's a hit song yes yes and you wrote that with jake mm-hmm. and i want to explain to people because everybody i mean many people know jake brackman as a famous songwriter and partner of yours where did you meet him i met jake at summer camp we were both counselors at indian hill camp in the berkshires and jake was the um the swimming counselor, and he also taught literature. These were very arty kids, and I was the guitar teacher. All all the kids met me for the first time. They they had known each other from the summer before. Jake wasn't there yet because he had hepatitis and was in the hospital. But they said, "Oh, wait till you meet Jake. You'll be you'll just fall in love with each other or be friends for the rest of your life." I don't think anybody had ever ever quite introduced me to somebody before I actually met them with those terms that they would that we'd be lifelong friends. And the day that he got there, they prepared a cookout. The campers did, and they said, "Now we want you to come down to the cookout, and Jake will come down to the cookout, and you'll stand opposite each other, but with with your backs to each other. And at the count of three, you'll turn toward each other, and lightning will strike, and you. you'll see." what we mean about that you're two halves of one person. And so it was one, two, three, and we turned across this fire which was raging between us, and we both smiled, and we recognized each other in ourselves and vice versa. And it was quite amazing. And Jake just dropped me off here today. What was it about him? Uh, was he writing songs then? Was he, he was a musician and into songwriting? And- no. Jake was, at that point, he had just graduated from Harvard. He was the 
editor of The Crimson, and he went in, he was writing for Newsweek magazine, he was writing for Talk of the Town, and he was, he was the young writer on the scene, he was the young prose writer on the scene. When we started writing songs together, he then also got into working with Terrence Malick, and he worked on Days of Heaven and on Badlands, and he wrote King of Marvin Gardens. With Jack. With Jack Nicholson in, in that. And so he's, he's a man of all words, most of them quite, quite funny. He, he's an unusual to character. Beyond journalism Jay. and screenwriting, he was a lyricist. He was writing lyrics. Well, he had never written lyrics before, but I had this melody. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And the whole song, because I'd written that for, for an NBC special called Who Killed Lake Erie. That was the background music for that. So when I was going to make this demo, I couldn't get lyrics for it because if I write a melody first, I can't seem to find lyrics to it. It's got to be the other way around. I write lyrics first. And so I had this melody, and Jake was by then my best friend. And I said, do you want to try to write a lyric? So I gave him on a little cassette, I gave him that melody, and he came back a day or two later with a, with a full lyric, except for one verse, which we edited out. My friends from college, they're all married now. They have their houses and their lives. They have their silent noons, tearful nights, angry dawns. Their children hate them for. Lyrics, because those there's very pungent lyrics in that song. They, they hate themselves to. for what they are. Very good. Who is he talking about? Well, his girlfriend was just about to move in with him. Jake and I lived apart, lived one block away from each other, but we shared each other's lives, and our, our friends were each other's friends. And I met most of the people that I know today through through Jake, or vice versa. So his girlfriend, Ricky, was just about to move in with him, and he realized that she was going to be moving into his rooms. And that's an invasion of territory for certain people. And, it I mean, it means a whole lot. It means not only are you going to be in my rooms, but you're, I'm not going to be able to get you out of my rooms if you're living with me. So from Jake's point of view, that, that song was, you know, are we going to marry? Are we not going to marry? And we had talked a lot about marriage and a lot about the fact that being in love with somebody, living with somebody, didn't necessarily indicate that you had to get married, as it when had in the, in the Eisenhower were years were, were, were different. Um, what, 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 what situation of yours were you referring well, to? The, Men in your life? Every man that I was, uh, that I was with... I felt I had to marry. If I was going to sleep with them or if I was going to have sex with them in any way, I felt as if I, as if I had to marry them and have children. That's exhausting. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so times were changing. Sure. And this was, a, this was a very different era. The Kennedy years were upon us, and the hippiedom, the, the Woodstock era, 
the times were hugely changing. I mean, I didn't didn't necessarily have to marry the person that you were living with and raise a family of our own, you and me. Um, that's the way they, 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 I've always heard it should be, you want to marry me. Right. And then, oh, we'll, we'll marry. We'll marry, yeah. But With resignation almost. With resignation, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. And so that's how the song really came to life was about the disillusionment of my parents' marriage, which was about walking home at night and tiptoeing by my mother's bedroom. And she she calls out sweet dreams, but I forget how to dream. And my father sitting in the living room with his cigarette, his cigarette glows in the dark. And so it's it's, it's all about the, the separation of the people who are supposed to be married or supposed to live in one happy house together who are really not happy and right. living in that house And together. how that affects you when you see them. You wrote a book, and a lot of it includes some of your childhood and your marriage and everything. You know, you're both your marriages, and you... I think your book only goes up through your first marriage, but the idea being that, you know, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Well, you know, th- this, was, omit this was very important. When I first got asked to write my memoir was in 1986, and I was, and I was called on the phone by Jacqueline Onassis, and she said, Carly, Carly, I think you would make a wonderful writer of a memoir. And so that's how I started, I, and I wrote about 60 pages at that point, and realizing that I was leaving out the very nucleus of the story, which was about my parents and their marriage, and the the thing that happened to their marriage, which was that which was the great divide of having my brother's tutor come to live with us, and he and my mother fell in love, and that was a separate relationship which existed in the same house that she lived in with my father and us and and all and all of the kids. So trying to leave that out was almost impossible when that formed the very essence of me that I was trying How to write so? about. In the first place, everything was a lie. Everything that I saw as the truth, I was denied the veracity of. And so when I said, well, mom and dad are still in love, aren't they, to my older sisters, they'd say, yes, they are. They're very much in love. And then I would ask my mother and father, you know, you don't ever kiss. Can I see you kiss? And my father would bend my mother down in a, in a theatrical kind of like a bogus, tango dancer, yeah. a bogus kiss. <laughs> bogus. And uh, and it looked strange to me. There was something very off about it. But I was supposed to believe that they were in love. So they, would, was, so they would perform for you. Yes, that's right. They would right. pretend to mollify you. Well, once. And then she was off with the. What, what, what was Ronnie. the? Uh, what was the name? Ronnie. And where was Ronnie from? Ronnie was um, a teacher or he was going to teaching school at Columbia at, at the time. He was 19 and she was 42. And where was he from, Ronnie? He was from Pittsburgh. Ronnie from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And um, they, were in, they were in love for many years. It, it, it killed my father, a combination of that relationship that she had with Ronnie and the fact of his relationship at, at Simon & Schuster where he, he started to do things in a, in a way that the accountant who they had brought on board in the company, this, this guy named Leon Schuster, didn't want him to do. And so therefore, my father, at the same time as as he became sort of sick with grief over his relationship with my mother, he got more and more out of the loop at Simon & Schuster, and they sort of tried to move him up or out of the mainstream with Max and Leon. And, and that kind of killed him off further. And then he drank too much 
too much. He ate too much ice cream and smoked too many cigarettes, and that made him ill. And so the, it was a perfect storm, and he got and he died at the age of sixty. Mm. Now, now Simon, for people who don't know, the Simon and Simon and Schuster was your father. Was he founded father. the company. Yes. It wasn't his family's business. Yes, at the age of twenty-four, he met Max Schuster, his old college friend from Columbia. They met. They were both selling pianos at Steinway, I guess, at Steinway and Son. And they said, let's let's go out to lunch and let's let's go into business together. Oh, what should we do? What about books? And so they made a little sign which they put on the office at the office space that they'd rented saying, Simon and Schuster, publisher, what, books. And the first book that they published was the Crossword Puzzle book, which made them a fortune and, and which started them off with great good footing, with good footing, great speed, opportunities to galore, grow. and they were the very you know, center of of the publishing world. And your father was a New Yorker. Yes, yes. And your mother, where's she from? My mother was from Germantown, Pennsylvania. Her mother, Shebe, was Cuban, and came to the United States on a banana boat. She was Cuban, but she was from Africa, but her grandmother had spent some time in Cuba. I have the whole lineup. So are you part black or are you part Cuban or both? I'm 15% black. Really? Yeah. She's an African, an yes, African. Yes, yes, Your maternal grandmother. Yes. And she was African and went to A- Cuba. That's right. That's right. And then she was schooled in England, and so she spoke with an English accent. And she was ashamed of what she probably didn't even know she was, but she bleached her skin her whole life, and so she passed as white. But she spoke with an English accent, and we used to always ask her about what her background was, and she would say, when I die, you will find nothing but nothing, and I never talk about the past. So we weren't able to get very much out of her. Your mother's mother. Yes, we weren't able to get anything out of her, but she was such a character. Did your mother have a career? My mother did not have an official career, no. She was a singer, but she, and she was a wonderful singer, but she, her, her career was raising her four kids. Now, what was music in your home? I mean, your father from a young age becomes a very successful uh, publisher in New York. I mean, but the, the he name was is really a pianist. In fact, when he, when he had a bunch of heart attacks and strokes toward the end of his life, and he didn't have his mind and he didn't have the capacity of the full fullness of his mind, he always thought he was going to Carnegie Hall. When in fact he was just going downtown to dinner with my mother, and he'd say, well, we, "Sissy, you forgot to get off at Fifty Seventh Street. We're, I'm going to be late." Because he always thought he was going to be playing it. He didn't always think, but once in a while he had the fantasy that he was going to be playing at Carnegie Hall. He was a great pianist. Classical pianist. Yes, yes. So music in your home is classical music? It was standards. classical on the part of my father. And a circle of people coming in and out of your home who were celebrities and... I have two uncles, one on my father's side and one on my mother's side, started jazz magazines. One downbeat and the other metronome. So they were very good friends, and they and they had all the drummers and the the jazz players in this house that we lived on on Eleventh Street. So there was music from from the jazz uh, era, and then my mother always sang the the show tunes because this was the great era of of Oklahoma and yeah, Carousel Rogers and Showboat and, 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 and Porgy and Bess was actually performed for my mother and father first 
by George and, and Ira Gersh when they came over to our house. And my mother was asked to sing Summertime since she had a beautiful soprano voice for them to see how it would sound in the, the soprano voice or to see what it's, it's... I don't know exactly what they went over there for, but my mother ended up singing soprano and on Summertime and my father ended up ended up correcting a couple of her notes and that embarrassed her tremendously. And she always used that as the excuse as to why she had an affair and cuckolded him. No. <laughs> One of them, yes. That's an interesting. Yes. <laughs> now, now, your brother, you've got two sisters. Mm-hmm. What did your brother end up doing for a living? What My brother's a photographer, a very well-known photographer in his field. He's got a bunch of books out. and he, he started by touring with Bob Marley, and he toured with the Grateful Dead, taking all of their, their pictures. And then, then he's... Um, oh, and then he worked... He, he was the Mets. He was the official Mets photographer. And... He he's he's done a wide variety. He's an he's an excellent photographer. And your sisters? Was, my sisters are both musicians. My, right. my but not performers. My eldest sister, right. Joanna, was was an, an opera singer of of some merit and quite a lot of class and finesse and stature. <laughs> Those four things, right. and she was very good. Besides, and she 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 was a soloist with uh, a lot of different conductors, Eugene Ormandy and and. Um, and what's the she name? was a New Yorker, or she was with Ormandy in Philadelphia. She well, she sang with or, with orchestras all over oh, the world. Right. Yes, she sang with Zubin Mehta and shared a. So you Kumar. and your sister played together, correct? My sister Lucy. Now Lucy. she hasn't been Ooh, mentioned yet. Right. She is the middle sister, and she um, she is a composer of music for the Broadway theater. Mm-hmm. She wrote The Secret Garden. Of course. So you and Lucy used to perform together. Lucy and I sang as the Simon and Sisters. Yes. Now where are you going and what do you wish? The old moon asked the three. Well, we're going out fishing for heron fish that live in the beautiful sea. Nets of silver and gold have we said, winking and blinking and all. And was that around the time that you were in your mid-twenties when you were about to break out with your... It was a little solitaire? earlier. It was when so a bit I, earlier. It was when I was in college. Where'd you go? I went to Sarah Lawrence. Of course you did. No, why? No, that's a joke. And the and the and, and you were singing with her in what clubs in Manhattan? Or? We decided one summer she she had learned some chords on the guitar, and um, we only had one guitar, but we wanted to spend the summer. We wanted to go up to the Cape for the summer, so we hitched up to the Cape. Was the Cape always a part of your childhood? Was that the Simon family? Yes, yes. It was a part of your childhood. Martha's Vineyard was, right. and so we. We basically hitchhiked up to the Cape with one guitar and 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 went to Provincetown, and we got a job there, and we had to learn immediately some more chords on the guitar. But we kept on switching around guitars, right. and we played things like the Banana Boat song, which we didn't know that my grandmother had any, any, any part of being a part of at that point, but we sang other Harry Belafonte songs, too, and we sang uh, folk songs. We sang some Joan Baez but we expanded our repertoire that Michael rowed that the summer. boat ashore. Oh yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, and they built the ship figure. Titanic. When does it change and when because when I think of you, just not only in your work, the quality of your work, the the beauty of your work, the the range of your work, the songs in terms of them some being fun and playful and some being really sad. All of a sudden you go from you know being this child of privilege in Manhattan and you're this famous family and everything. Then all of a sudden you become a big star. Was that difficult for you? It was it was difficult on many levels. How so? It was difficult because um it was actually the summer that 
Lucy and I played in London. It was 1965, and it was the summer of the Beatles, and it was the summer of, of the King's Road, and it was such a great time. And I fell in love with an Englishman who was sort of a manager and a mentor, and Lucy fell in love with, with a man that she was seeing, a, a doctor who she was seeing back here. And when we, we, we had a kind of a falling out over Sean Connery, actually, which is in my book, we imagined ourselves to be sort of vying for his attention. In some quirky way, it went around to that. And when we got back to the United States after that summer of 65, we we stopped singing together, whether it was because of that rift over Sean Connery. Sean. Over Sean. Or whether 007. Was, 007, or whether it was the fact that Lucy was was in love with her husband, who's still her husband, David, we kind of went our own separate ways, and and I got courted by Albert Grossman and John Court, who who were, who were Dylan's managers, and they called me over to Gross Court. It was that period, the day before Bob Dylan's motorcycle accident. I met with him, with Bob Dylan, and he rewrote a song for me that was an uh, an Eric von Schmidt song called "Baby, Let Me Follow You Down," and. He rewrote it for me, and as he was rewriting the words, he just, he was very high. This was the cause of his accident. I don't think it's any secret is that he was really going nuts with drugs at that point. But he stretched out his arms like this, like that, and said, just believe me, believe me. You got to go to Nashville. Go to Nashville and do your record there. And then the next day he was in. Even back then. Even back then. Yeah, this was just, I guess, after, was it after Nashville Skyline? No, it couldn't have been. No, no. But he he had just done some some recording in Nashville, and he thought that that was the place that I should record my record. But because he was just getting together with the band at that point, so and I and I was getting together with Robbie Robertson to go into the studio and do some work with that song that Bob Dylan had written for me, as well as. Um, a song called uh, "Just Because I Asked a Friend About Her," a George Jones song, is it? He, she thinks I still care, or he thinks I still care. In the, in the case of me, and so um, I work. I worked with Robbie for 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 that week. Went into the studio, had a bad couch experience with the with the engineer, who put the song in the wrong key for me. I sang it. And what was supposed to come out as... What does bad couch experience mean? It means, you know, the Hollywood couch experience. Oh, someone tried to couch you. Well, I, yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be... You refused to be couched. I refused to be couched, and so they kind of sabotaged, I felt, that recording session. Oh, you felt session. that in response to your yes. anti-couching policy, yes, he sabotaged I got, I got up from the couch and I said, I am not that green. Not knowing right. what I meant at all, but... <laughs> I thought green was a good color to say I wasn't. <laughs> so you feel that he might have been some malicious t- tinkering with the song? Well, yes, and I was shelved at Columbia because that was the label I was going to be on. This was 1966. Right. So I was shelved for three years, at which point I became a fat secretary. What does that mean? I worked for a television production company. and Where? I- I was, it was called Canaan Productions in New York. Well, where was their offices? On 57th Street. Uh, near CBS, West, way west? That's right. It was, and and, and you, you did that for how long? A year. Not about, three years, but, a year. 
I, yes, but I was fat for three years. Now, for you, what's fat? You're like 10 pounds overweight? No, I don't. I'm, I think I weighed about 165 or 170. And you got there as a result of what? There, there was this thing that was advertised as milkshakes, and they were to be bought at this place on 45th Street, and they were advertised, and they were the most delicious things you'd ever tasted, but it, it promised that they were only 47 calories. But and that they were all really ice. That what you were eating was ice. What was it called? I don't remember. I don't yeah. remember. But but the lines were around the block. It was all, it was a sham at any rate. And, and so you were eating these. You were eating this beverage, thinking that I was gonna. I was losing weight. I was eating them. And, they were dying. They were advertised bring as them diet home shakes. And stash them in the freezer and eat them for weeks and gain weight and more weight and more weight. Oh my god. Well, I met Jake around that time too. At, at the end of that, at the end of that period, during that period of working for Canaan Productions, is when I I started working for their TV show called From the Bitter End, and I was the, the talent. Club the Bitter End. Yes, right. but it was a TV show that was based on the Bitter End, and so they had performers such as Marvin Gaye, and and they had they had the same type of performers that would be at the actual Bitter End. And and I was the I was the uh, person who would take them tea and would see that they were that they were happy and, and happily ensconced in their dressing room. Yeah, but when when the song with Jake, that's the way I always heard it. Should be came out was what year? Nineteen seventy. And what happens? You become famous. You become successful. Well, all right. So then I made my first album, which which I thought was going to be a collection of demos, and. That's the way I've always heard it should be. Was on that record. Jack Holzman thought it could be, you know, it could. If if I promoted this record, it could possibly be something. And he asked me to perform, and and I was asked actually on the basis of the album to open up for Cat Stevens at the Troubadour. This was in 1971, just after the record had come out, which was the end of '70. And so I said, Oh no no no, you know I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> I just um, I. I, I was uh, this this album is just for other other singers to hear and hopefully pick out a song for them, but Jack Holzman and Steve Harris, the A and R man at Electra, were persistent and they said, well, what would it take to get you to perform with Cat Stevens to, to open for Cat Stevens, who's who who was asked for you to open his act, and and I was thinking on my feet and I and I'd been reading Rolling Stone and I followed James Taylor's career. I I didn't know him but I was following his career because I thought he was absolutely totally great. And I knew that he was on the road and so I also knew his whole band and I said, "Okay, get me Russ Kunkel as a drummer." Because I knew Russ was on the road with James. And so the next day, it's amazing how how things work. The stars are aligned. The next day, I got a call from Jack Holzman saying, Okay, well, uh, Kunkel's available. When do rehearsals start? And I said, what do you mean Kunkel's available? And I said, well, James was just in an accident, in a motorcycle accident yesterday. All these motorcycle accidents changing yeah, right. my life. Right. And so... Be careful what you wish for. Because so, Kunkel's on his way. Kunkel's on his way. So, so I started rehearsals the next week with Jimmy Ryan, who became my, my guitarist for many, many years, and Paul Glantz friend of Jimmy's, and the three of us rehearsed in New York for three days, and then we went out to L.A., rehearsed with Russ for one day, and by that time I had... Open for Cat Stevens. Open, open for Cat Stevens then, on then, April then, 6th, 1971. April 6th? Yes. And that changed things for you? That was, yeah, that, that was a convincing night. We played two shows every night and four shows on the weekend. 
I met all all kinds of people. It, it was like the the lights you were, were shining on me. I couldn't Tag, you're it. I couldn't say no at that point. And I and even though I, I was suffering tremendous stage fright, I had various things that tricked me out of being afraid. Did you move to LA? No, no, no. You never lived in LA? No. Why? Well, I lived in LA for various when when, when James and I got married, we lived in LA to make certain records there. But I, you visited I, LA, or did you live visited. there? We rented houses. Right. In fact, the house that O.J. Simpson like bought oh, af- right. after in Rockingham, we lived in. Yes. Did he like LA? Did James like yeah. LA? I, I think we both found it um, agreeable, and and it was convenient while we were recording. The right. studios were right there. That was a different LA too. Sally was a, a, actually both the kids were just brand new and were able to be with. We we could take them to the studio and they, there was no school to be involved. You know, it was it was it was great. It was really great the years that we. Where did he like to live? What was home to him? Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, that's home to him. Yes, he's most well, it comfortable was. there. It was, yeah. Yeah, but he's most comfortable there. Not a New Yorker either. No. No, I don't think either of us were really in. We we kept on trying to figure out what to do all the time in New York. None, we neither of us really knew what to do. How did poaching Kunkel for your recordings in L.A. lead you to? And you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Your first marriage. Well, I met James the the first night that I was performing at at, at the Troubadour. He came backstage into the dressing room to I don't know see Russ or see me or whatever, and, and he was just kind of sitting sitting there in the corner until Joni Mitchell came in and, and said, come on, James, we have to leave now. So that's the first time I actually met James, even though we'd passed and met a couple of times on the vineyard in a peripheral kind of way, as youngsters, as, as very young kids we'd met. Or he, his family had been up there as well yes, when he was up. Yes. And then how soon after that did you get married? Well, then we re-met. Af- after that, we, we met the following Thanksgiving well, the Thanksgiving of 1971, I went to his show at Carnegie Hall, and I went backstage in, in, in between acts. And I said to him, you know, we, we said hi again, and how are you? And it, it was just in, you know, it was in between the show, and everybody was drinking beer, and James's band was hanging out. And James said, and I said to James, you know, if you're ever in New York and you want a home-cooked meal, please, please give me a call. And he said, how about tonight? And so that was that was the first of many home cooked meals. <laughs> There's one big home cooked meal. One large home cooked meal. I'm sure with someone who is as talented as you, and who made so much music as you have, so much great music, someone who's as gifted as you, there must be countless moments like that. But share one with us of when you were doing it, whether you're in a studio or you're performing or you're doing a duet with somebody, something in your life as a musician that just sticks with you as like, this is it. This is what it's all about. There's so, so, I, so, I'm, so I'm very lucky that so much comes to my mind. That it's very hard to pick out one because sure. there there are many many. Um, which one do you want? Give me one, <laughs> you choose. Give me one from. Well, give me a hint. Well, give me one from when you did the uh, songbook, when you did the 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 Sanders album. Stephen came to the studio, to the recording studio while I was recording it, which was live with an orchestra. Not a day goes by. Right. And I was pretty tense that Stephen Sondheim, of course, the great Stephen Sondheim, mm-hmm. who'd written the song that I was singing, was in the studio. And very with proprietary me. about his material. Yes, and so I was in the in the vocal booth, and there's a little window in a vocal booth, 
And so I wanted to avoid the window because he could see me through the window. So I, I hunched down on, on my knees. I got down on my knees and did the vocal sitting on my knees in a, in, a, in a slightly compromising position because I just had to hunch down. And then I got up at, and it was a fairly, I thought it was a, under the circumstances, a pretty, pretty good vocal. And I got up af- afterward and I walked in, back into the control room and his head was in his hands and he was weeping. <sighs> With, ha- with tears of gladness, I'm happy to say. What a wonderful thing. Oh, God. So that's, that's pretty heraldic. Not a day goes by Not a single day But your son Coming up, Carly Simon talks about the roots of her stage fright. I talked to another musician from New York, this one from Queens, who also defined his generation. People weren't prepared for, for what it is that I was in the world that I came from. Nobody, nobody said, well, uh, will you make your living as an artist? Like, that wasn't a possibility. Certainly you couldn't make your living as a rock and roll artist. And, I mean... Forget about, like, the greatest songwriters or something like that. Just even a songwriter. Take a listen to my entire conversation with Paul Simon at heresthething.org. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Carly Simon has earned every bit of fame she's achieved, but one could argue she was destined for stardom. Her childhood was peppered with remarkable characters. Albert Einstein at the dinner table. Jackie Robinson playing second base in her backyard. As a grown-up, she amassed her own exceptional circle of friends. One spontaneous evening that I will never forget, I was lucky enough to count myself among them. I get the call from Jim, your ex-husband Jim Hart, and Jim calls me and says, uh, now Carly and I would love you to come to the house, and we're going to have a quick alfresco meal. Don't be late. It'll be you and Carly and I, and a mystery guest. I get to the house, and you know who shows up, and I'm apoplectic. You know, I mean, I was, I was, I was beside myself. I didn't know what to say. Because she turned to me, Jacqueline Kennedy, and she said to me, uh, so tell me about acting. She said, I want you to talk to me about <laughs> acting, because my son John is very interested in acting. And literally, I remember looking at her going, you want me to talk to you about acting? <laughs> I said, you're kidding, right? Like, I thought, how could this be possible? But did you feel, you, you're friends with the former first lady of the United States, one of the most famous women that ever lived, and uh, other friendships of yours that I've known? Mike and Diane, you were very good friends with Nichols and his wife. And uh, is that easier for you? Did you find in your life that as your life progressed for you, was it easier to be friends with people who had the same kind of issue of fame and so forth as you did? I don't think so. No. I don't think that really had very much to do with it. I mean, I met Jackie originally because of the book idea that she had and because— But she was working in that business. She was working at Doubleday, but right. I also met her on the vineyard before at uh, at a party at the Styrons, and uh, Bill and Rose Styrons. Right. Who uh, be, see, see the vineyard has a population that includes a lot of great s- sort of l- literary figures: right. Bill Styron and Art Buckwald, John Hersey, and Mike Wallace. Lillian Hellman was actually the first of those people, and she she probably attracted the Styrons up there, and it just became an enclave that particular area of the vineyard. And so when James and I got married, we were we were half in that scene and half in the carpenters, just the people who were who were building our house and we, we played volleyball with out on the lawn and went clamming with and but there was a kind of a nice melange of of those two groups. And James and I weren't were not the only people who straddled both sides because because I don't necessarily think it's easier to be with celebrities. I think if you have friends, I mean, I, in the first place, I think it's very hard to make friends past the age of thirty. That's interesting you say that. Um, I find that that a lot of the celebrity friends that that I've made because the attraction of the similar similar celebrities attract or something. Don't don't gen or they're 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 not 
they're not wholesome in in a certain way. And it's a little bit like being with a record company when you don't have a successful record. And the first record that you've had that's that's really successful, you get a fur throw for your bed, you know, and then the next one you haven't done that well and you get a Cartier pen. And then, and then finally, you you've really dropped off the chart charts, and you get like a little basket that's filled with with shredded paper and and a shampoo from Kiehl's. And so, it, it, in that way, it's a little bit when you're sort of courting the friendship of somebody that you're a new friend with, and you're so excited that you've made this friend who you've admired from afar for so long, and you sort of you, know, you court them with attention and things that don't don't continue as you get to know them or they've or they offend you once or there's a falling out or there's a there's a disruption or there's a jealousy or there's something and then then there's a you know the the first year of courting there's this there's a great gift now i'm talking about the metaphor of a gift because it can come in all different ways and then and then it decreases down to you know the santa claus slippers and there's not there's 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 a kind of a feeling that you're only as good as your last present from them is and and you're so easily you're so easily wounded by things that they do or if they don't write you as long an email back as you've written to them you you know you count the number of lines that you've written here I wrote this whole long letter about what you you meant to me and all the things we did together and then they answer you back saying I'll file that away love <laughs> You know, I, I find that for me, uh, I'm remarried and I've got little kids and I've got a three-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old and a, a five-month-old. We've had three kids in three and a half years. Oh I have exactly what I wanted. But my friends fall off because I've had this choice. Now. These, I've got my kids. My wife is my dear friend. What about friends from high school? I'm in touch with one guy from high school and he lives in Norman, Oklahoma. But I'm not into it. High school, like I say in my book, high school was a skin that I shed. Ah. All I care about is now. Can you discipline yourself to that degree? It just happened to me automatically. What it was about like, it was dreams? Like, don't they refer to the past? Um, I just don't want those things to intrude. Sometimes they're like about, a cancer What about deja vu? Now. I mean, the, the, the smells, the things that you eat, the the... The sensory, hopefully, they're only the beautiful memories. things and good things. You know, I mean, I walked around after a very corrosive custody battle, and, and even when I thought I it had subsided, I'd be having dinner with somebody who they'd mentioned themselves or someone close to them whose circumstances mirrored mine, and it would come right back to me if you could see the sparks coming off my fingertips. You know, I was so charged. But what about all the good things too? I mean, that's different. That's no, different. But so, but how can you how can how can you segregate them to that degree? It's just a, it's just a, how do you write a song? Well, that's how do you, how do you sing the way you do? I, it's a talent. You I have. have to take my feelings. I I I I can't uh, I can't exp I can't expurgate in the same way that you seem to be able to. I mean, I I write about things that I feel and the past and the present and the possibly the future merge and i can't possibly tell you that that my past isn't just as much a part of my present as my pre I, mean, I mean it it is your 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 a combination your wholeness becomes it's parts of it's like your building blocks of your years so 
for the person who was preternaturally shy, it seems, you didn't really enjoy performing. You've always are quoted as saying, uh, what do you do? I mean, as, as you have a preparation before you fly in an airplane, was there a preparation before you performed live? Well, you want to get back to the origins of why I'm so afraid to be in the in the spotlight? Yes. Or is that, I mean, because I had a terrible stammer for, for ever since I could talk. So your mother told you to sing. So she told me, yes. Pass me the butter. But that didn't always work right. in school. I couldn't do that. <laughs> they didn't have butter at school. And so I, I, um, I, every time I was called upon in class, even if I knew an answer, I couldn't say it. But I didn't want to admit that I couldn't say it. So the choice was to just pretend that I didn't know it or pretend or, or just go, which would you do? So I pretended that I didn't know the answer and that I, n- I never wanted to be called upon. And that, has, and that, just, that just graduated to the same thing in college. I mean, the, the same situation in class in college and the same situation. I am afraid to talk. I am doing so now by the very skin of my chinny-chin-chin. Right. <laughs> Whereas I've, I've mixed, I mis- mixed a metaphor. So what was the preparation before you would perform? Well, at least my band members would all have to hit me. Spank me. That's that was one. Back thing. on the couch again? No, that no. wasn't on the couch. Right. That was definitely in in just before I'd go on stage. I, so that the physical pain would would override the uh, the emotional so struggle. You. Yes, yes. That's interesting. Yeah, just as when I mean I I was once sitting with Stephen Sondheim on on a piano bench. He was working on that show called Merrily, and I was starting to have an anxiety attack. And just getting more and more, um, thinking that my heart was going to beat out of my chest. I was so scared. It wasn't, there was no reason to be. I was just having an anxiety attack. And so I pinched my earlobe thinking that, that, that the physical pain again would distract me from the emotional fear. And the blood started pouring out of my ear onto my white, onto my white shirt. So, I mean, yeah, but I'll do anything to avoid that mental pain that I, I remember Johnny Ray was a singer from the from the 50s who would cry when he would sing and I'm the same way there's some songs I can't get through like what um well just recently that's the way I've always heard it should be I was singing that for a group of people who were, who were trying to learn it because we were going to do it for a concert on Martha's Vineyard and I got to the verse about you say we'll soar like two birds through the clouds, but you, but soon you'll cage me on your shelf. I'll never learn to be just me first by myself. And I just, it just all came flooding back. All the feelings of, of being possessed and wanting to possess and wanting to wanting to combine. You just, we're just sitting here as human beings, so much wanting to merge, and yet we can't. And it's so frustrating. We can't. So we're sitting here. Is the is it that you mean you can't and you're you and that partner, or we meaning all of us can't? All of us can't. Oh, isn't that amazing? Oh God, I'm there, listening to you say are, this. There and you're such times, an authority on love. There are times that there are times. I'm that so we can. sorry I asked you to come here now. <laughs> One of the things that 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 does make you blend more easily, that acts as a as a lubricant to being able to pass yourself to another person, is music. And it is the thing that is the common denominator. It's something that you listen to at the same time. You feel at the same time. You it goes through your body at the same time. The vibrations, the actual vibrations, you, you are felt in your body, and and that's 
a way to merge. That's certainly was my way of merging because that's something that I could do. But merging together, when when James and I used to sing together, that was about as great as it it got. You felt that way, or yes, absolutely. You think he felt that way? Did you think he dug doing that with you too? I don't Would know. Would he tell you that? I don't know. Would he share how he felt with you? No, or he's pretty reticent. Yeah, he, he he wouldn't say that. But my 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 kids would and do, and I sing with them, and we are as one when we sing. My uncle, he would always end everything that he did with this song called Look at the Blue Birds and the Blackbirds. Do you know that song? No. I don't know why I thought of it, but but I'm going to sing it if I remember it. Look at my doorstep, look at my doorstep, look at the bluebirds, look at the blackbirds, look at the good luck, look at the bad luck, look at the good luck and the bad luck. They're wit, never knew bluebirds, knew any blackbirds, never knew blackbirds, knew any bluebirds, never knew good luck, ever to perch out there. I overheard, boom, 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 those birdies talking, boom, 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 and this is what they had to say. Now first the bluebirds said, you gotta have sunny weather. So the bluebirds and the blackbirds got together. And then the blackbirds said, we're birds of a different feather. So the bluebirds and the blackbirds got together. Oh, well, when they talked it over, they let the blackbirds bring the rain. And then the bluebirds all agreed to bring the sunshine again. But you can't have rain or sunshine that lasts forever. You can take those bluebirds, you take those blackbirds, you put them together, you get fair weather. And that's the reason the bluebirds and the blackbirds got together. I did it in his key and not in mine, but what the hell? <laughs> Live! Jesus. Martha's Vineyard's own Carly Simon. Thank you. Thank you. After our interview, I realized I still had a couple more questions for Carly Simon. So I called her up. Hello? Hey, it's Alec. Hey, Alec. Who were the people who were your contemporaries who you worked with who made the deepest impression on you? Um, well, it would have to be certainly James Taylor. I mean... Now, Why? Well, before I met him, I listened to his music, and it, and it stirred something very immediate and heartfelt and specific. I mean, it, 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 there was an arrow that was directly from him to me. You know, one one of the things that the incredible pain that I feel from not having that returned. You know, from from not from not having that accepted. In other words, that James will not talk to me. And that that's not that that's not a mutual thing, and I don't know why. And, right. and it, it's one of those things where you have to you have to go on and live the destiny of your life by yourself. His music had a tremendous effect on me. Cat Stevens did too, because I, I was listening to a lot of of his music around that time. But then there was there were um, all all of the great musicals of the of the forties and fifties, especially Guys and Dolls. And Kiss Me Kate, and Brigadoon, South Pacific, um, uh, you know, I, 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 and then there were the the operas like Amal and the Night Visitors, like like you mm-hmm. know, the Minotti operas and 
because there was so much music of different of different um, types going around my house. Joey was the person who brought in the classical music, but so would my father because he played the you know he he played such a variety of classical music on the piano, and then and then Joey was the opera singer, and she brought that into the house in, in that form, and and then. My mother was the one who primarily listened to the to the theater music, but my uncles were both the the founders of jazz magazines and and they they were you know they they were the ones that, that listened to Dave Brubeck and and uh, Lambert Hendricks and Ross and brought those people you know, th- so there were there was the, a, a whole huge variety of of visitors in my head of of all kinds of music. I would say that, that, that other than polkas, I, did, I didn't listen to a lot of polkas. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I wasn't uh, very much in, into country music at, at that time either. I mean, it wasn't, it hadn't made, hadn't made itself into mainstream, but, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't love the twang. You sing all these songs about love, thoughts about love are in so many of your songs. Who's the love of your life? Well, I, I guess my kids, without without question, I think you probably understand that. Yeah, it's just um, it's it's breathtaking how how much how, how on a different on different level it exists, and but it teaches yeah. you about it teaches you about a brand new level. And and as far as romantic love, I I don't I don't necessarily want to go there because that doesn't necessarily last as long as 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 the as the other kind of soul love. I mean, I suppose there must be some people who favor one child over another, and that must be very hard for them to say, well, I, that it's both of my kids or three of my kids when it's really only one. I, I don't know. I, don't have, I haven't had that experience because, because I love my children equally and, and so much, and there's, there's, there's a lot left over. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.